The reading this morning is from Ecclesiastes 7, uh, verses 11 to 24, and uh, moving into Ecclesiastes 8, verse 9 through to chapter 9, verse 12. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter, but the advantage of knowledge is this, Wisdom preserves those who have it. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. In this meaningless life of mine, I've seen both of these the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one person more powerful than ten rulers in a city. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I tested by wisdom, and I said... I am determined to be wise, but this was beyond me. Whatever exists is far off and most profound. Who can discover it? All this I saw as I applied my mind to everything done under the sun. There is a time when a man lords it over others to his own hurt. Then too, I saw the wicked buried those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This too is meaningless. When the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know that it will go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before him. Yet because the wicked do not fear God, it will not go well with them, and their days will not lengthen like a shadow. There is something else meaningless that occurs on earth. The righteous who get what the wicked deserve, and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve. This too, I say, is meaningless. So I commend the enjoyment of life, because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labour that is done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night, then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, 
they cannot really comprehend it. So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes us. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil and there is madness in their hearts while they live and afterwards they join the dead. Anyone who is among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. Go, eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart, for God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white and always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labour under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead, where you are going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favour to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net, or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. Thanks, Lisa, and good morning, everyone. I hope you're enjoying your long weekend so far. Um, for a society that isn't overly religious, the idea of karma is quite a popular one. Um, this idea that what goes around comes around, that, that good things happen to good people, and people who do the wrong thing get what's coming to them. Um, in many ways, it's a very comforting thing to believe, isn't it? It's, it satisfies the, the desire that we have for the world to be a just and fair place. I have to say, though, that in my, my own personal experience, things often don't end up that way. Life is rarely as neat and as well-scripted as the movies that we like to watch. The reality is that evil people often live long lives without being held to account, while good people may die young or, or suffer greatly. I wonder, can, can you think of a time when the brokenness and the, and the injustice of the world has really hit home for you? Um, perhaps it's as you watch the news and, and you see what's going on in Myanmar, in, in Afghanistan, in North Korea, or any other number of places where evil seems to reign unchecked. Or perhaps it's hit home for you in a more personal way. How do we make sense of this reality? 
how do we make sense of life in a broken and unjust world? Well, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the teacher is asking the hard-hitting questions about life. He's asking, can I find true meaning and lasting gain in this life? And his answer so far has been no. Everything is meaningless, he tells us. Life under the sun is like a misty vapor. It has no substance. Finding satisfaction in life is like chasing the wind. We never quite pin life down where we want it. Now, the teacher might come across as a bit of a pessimist, but he's simply in tune with the deep desire in his heart for a sense of meaning and fulfillment that life just isn't providing. He's searched for meaning in work, in wisdom, in wealth, in pleasures, and all just leaves him longing for something more. Now, in the first six chapters that we've covered over the last couple of weeks, the teacher, he's described how the good things in life just don't quite bring fulfillment. And now, in chapters 7 through to 11, he flips to the other side of the coin and he examines the brokenness of the world that we live in. Now, we're going to be covering five chapters this morning, so we'll be bouncing around a little bit and, and drawing themes together rather than going through verse by verse. And the first thing that stands out to us as we read the teacher's observations in these chapters is that the world is unjust. So chapter 7, verse 15, it's um, in your leaflets there. In this meaningless life of mine, says the teacher, I have seen both of these the righteous perishing in their in their sorry the, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness the teacher doesn't believe in karma he's seen as we all have that life simply does not work that way there's a bit of hope in chapter 8 verse 9 he he observes a man lording it over others to his own hurt so sometimes life does seem to balance out people do face the consequences for their wrongdoings um, but then in the next verses, the teacher sees something else. He sees wicked men being praised. He sees people encouraged to do evil acts, knowing that they'll get away with it. Verse 14, he sees the righteous getting what the wicked deserve and the wicked getting what the righteous deserve. And all he can conclude is that it's meaningless. If good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people, then life under the sun is just fundamentally unjust. Uh, perhaps that's been your observation as well. Uh, the world is not just unjust, says the teacher, but it's also unpredictable. Chapter 7, verse 14. God has made both the good times and the bad times, and therefore we can't predict what's to come. The fact that God is sovereign over good times and bad times it can give us great comfort in the, in the midst of pain and suffering. But it also leaves us with the reality of pain and suffering. God doesn't promise us a life free of suffering. Chapter 9, verse 11 brings out this unpredictable nature of life. This is what the teacher observes under the sun. The race is not to the swift, nor the fight to the strong, nor food to the wise. Time and chance happen to them all. So what he's saying here is that not even the best plans and preparation can guarantee success. Life is unstable and unpredictable. There is one predictable thing in life, though, and that's the reality of death. 
And yet even death is cruelly unpredictable. No one knows when their hour will come. The, the fish doesn't realize that he's caught in a net until it's too late, says the teacher. No one can control or delay the time of their death any more than they can stop the wind from blowing. People, all people, share a common destiny, both the righteous and the wicked, the good people and the bad. The same destiny overtakes them all. They join the dead. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. And this has been the story of the whole book of Ecclesiastes so far, if you've been with us the last few weeks. The teacher is searching for meaning and, and for satisfaction in life, and, and once again, the reality of death gets in the way. How can life have any substantial meaning when death is one day going to end it once and for all? So the teacher sees the world as a broken place. It's crooked, it's unable to be straightened. But surely being wise like the teacher can help us with this. Surely being wise can give us a fighting chance of finding some sort of meaning in life. Well, what the teacher concludes is that Wisdom is useful, but it's limited as well. When we're talking about wisdom, we're talking about how to live well. We're talking about applying knowledge to practical life. And in the Bible, when, when people talk about wisdom, it, it always has a bit of a moral dimension to it. Wisdom isn't just knowing how to live well, but it's knowing how to live well in light of who God is and who I am. It's about living with an awareness of God and, and a responsiveness to God. And so the teacher tells us, wisdom is useful. A wise person's rebuke is better than a fool's song. Now, no one, no one enjoys getting rebuked, but getting rebuked by a wise person can, can help us very much in life. And likewise, foolishness is destructive. Fools are all talk. They're no substance. There's nothing worse, says the teacher, than a fool in a position of power. Wisdom is useful, but it's limited as well. Sometimes wisdom doesn't help us. A lot of wise choices can be ruined by just one foolish choice. The, the teacher in chapter 10, verse one, he uses the, the um, very memorable illustration of dead flies ruining the, the scent of perfume. You can imagine if you're a professional perfume maker and you put all the ingredients together and make a really nice smelling perfume, but then you accidentally let some flies get into the, into the perfume jar and you open it up a few days later when the flies have died, your hard work is all going to be ruined. That perfume is not going to smell particularly good. We can get lots of things right, but ruin it all by just getting one thing wrong. Anyone who's forgotten to hit the save button when putting a Word document together can probably attest to that pretty well. Uh, the teacher realizes that human wisdom is always going to have its limits. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. No one can discover its meaning, not even the wise. We'll never be wise enough to feel like we've quite got life pinned down. Now, throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, if, you, if you've been with us the last few weeks, the teacher talks about life under the sun. And he's, what he's doing, he's surveying life based purely on a human viewpoint, based purely on what we can see, touch, observe, and know. It's a worldview that leaves God out of the picture. And he's been asking, does this worldview satisfy 
the desires, the deep desires in my heart? That's the question he's been asking, and, and now he's asking, does this worldview help me to comprehend what I see in the world around me? How does this view of life under the sun help us in a broken, unjust, unpredictable world where death is the only certainty? Well, it reminds us to enjoy life. There's nothing better under the sun, the teacher says, than to eat, be glad, and have joy in our toil. And he puts it very bluntly in chapter 9, you would have noticed. Eat your food, drink your wine, enjoy your wife all the days of your meaningless, toilsome life. Enjoy it while you're alive because you can't when you're dead. It's the brutal honesty that we've come to expect from the teacher so far throughout Ecclesiastes. And maybe you're here this morning and this is essentially your view of life. The world's a broken, messed up place. We live, then we die, and it's all over. Enjoy it while you can. Now, I'm sure that you try to do good for others. I'm sure that you try to be the best person that you can possibly be. I'm sure you, you try to make the world a better place and, and succeed. And I'm sure you'd frame that worldview in a much more positive way than what the teacher does here. But this is what it boils down to. And the teacher, what he's trying to do here, he's trying to lay this worldview bare and he's trying to ask, does it honestly satisfy the desires and longings within us? Does it honestly help us to make sense of the world around us? Is this really all there is to life? Don't you think there could be more? Well, the teacher thinks there's more. He may be examining life under the sun, but his most valuable insights and his most hopeful insights throughout the book come in those brief moments when he allows his gaze to go beyond the sun, when he brings God into the picture. And knowing God, it helps him to avoid a couple of unhelpful opposite extremes. Being wicked on one hand, but then on the other hand, thinking that being good alone can make him happy. Uh, in chapter 7, verse 16, having observed the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness, the teacher has some advice for us. Don't be over-righteous and don't be over-wise, he tells us. It's a bit, of a bit of a funny sort of expression. And I take it what he means is don't assume that being a good, wise person will guarantee a prosperous and pain-free life. Be realistic about the, what the world is like. And don't treat God like a vending machine either. Now, this isn't an excuse to be wicked and foolish, as he, as he makes clear in the next couple of verses. He says, nor be, nor be wicked or, or foolish. Not an excuse to be wicked or foolish, but there's a healthy balance in doing what's right, while at the same time knowing that it won't always guarantee the outcome that we want. And as we, as we look around us at a broken an unjust and unpredictable world, there are two important things that we see as we bring God into the picture. God is in control and things will be set right. So firstly, God is in control, even in the brokenness. Have a look at chapter 7, verse 13. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? God doesn't enjoy the crookedness and the brokenness of the world. 
Yet even this brokenness, it falls under his control. All of creation has been subjected to frustration, to crookedness, to brokenness by the, one, by the will of the one who subjected it, God. But one day things will be set right. The crookedness of the world will be set right. But to see how things are going to be set right, first, we have to understand just how badly things are wrong. Have a look in in chapter 7, verse 20, at the teacher's assessment of humanity. He says there, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Uh, In chapter 7, verse 29, we we missed it out on the reading, but it's up on the screen there. This, This is what the teacher concludes. God created mankind upright, but they've gone in search of many schemes. And this is exactly what we read right at the start of the Bible. God creates the world. He created people for the purpose of knowing him and enjoying him. He he creates it and he declares it to be a good creation. But then people chose to reject God's instructions, to do things our way instead of God's. And that's what the Bible calls sin. It's a relational issue. It's choosing to reject the perfect ways that God created us for and to do things my way instead. And so God puts a curse not only on humans, but the whole of creation. And this curse is what the teacher observes affecting every part of life. Our relationships with each other, our relationships with the, with the world around us, the created world around us, and most importantly, our relationship with God. These relationships are broken. Because of sin, we'll never straighten life out. We'll never tie up all those loose ends. Now, truly understanding the brokenness of the world, it means understanding my sin. It means realizing that in my own strength, in my own goodness, I stand guilty before God because I haven't lived up to his perfect standards. And this is the important thing to realize, that things things aren't just broken out there. Things are broken in here. The Bible shows us that all sin is serious. All sin separates us from God, even if it doesn't seem as bad to me as the next person's sin might. There's a a certain wisdom, isn't there, to what the teacher says in chapter 7, verse 21. Do not pay attention to every word people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For you know in your heart that many times you yourself have cursed others even as we shake our head at how broken the world is and and how broken the people around us are, we know that we're not perfect ourselves. When we we think about and and criticise what other people do, we know that we've done those bad things ourselves. Now, the idea of sin isn't flattering to us, is it? It doesn't pump up our self-esteem. In fact, it's offensive. Nobody loves the thought that they're a sinner. It's, It's a very unpopular message in today's world. And yet, what the Bible tells us about sin explains the world's brokenness in a way that the the under-the-sun view that the teacher is giving us never can. Everyone knows that the world is a broken place. Everyone knows that the world is an unjust and unpredictable place. We all watch the news. We all deal with difficult people. 
We all experience grief. This, this isn't new for us to, to know. The Bible doesn't just give us, the Bible doesn't just acknowledge the brokenness of the world. The Bible gives us the reason why the world is broken. But not, not just even the reason. The Bible gives us hope in the brokenness. The Bible gives us the solution. Even as the teacher observes injustice around him, he has this hope that justice will be done. At chapter 8, verse 12 and 13, he says that the, wickedness may li- the wicked may live for a long time, but it will go better with those who fear God. It will not go well with the wicked. The teacher, he had this hope that justice would one day be done, that things would be set right, that the, the wicked wouldn't get away with their wickedness forever. But where does that leave us if we're all sinners? What, what hope does that give us? Well, hundreds of years after the teacher wrote these words, God gave us the ultimate demonstration of both his justice and importantly, also his love. At the cross, where Jesus, his own son, gave up his life, bearing the punishment for our sin so that we don't have to. The beauty of the gospel message is that I can be right with God, not because I've earned it by being a good person, but because Jesus has earned on my behalf what I never, ever could. I just have to trust him. If you're here this morning checking out what church and Christianity are all about, well, this is what it means to be a Christian. It doesn't mean being such a good person that God has to accept me. It means trusting that Jesus was good enough, that Jesus is good enough, even when I'm not. See, on the cross, Jesus is saying to you, I know the worst things about you. The things that you've thought and said and done that you're utterly ashamed of, I know those things, but I still love you, enough to die for you. I'll take your sin on my shoulders. I'll bear it all so that you don't have to. There's nothing that you've done. There's no part of you too broken that my blood is not enough to cover. And I know the brokenness of this world. I know how it's touched you how you've suffered and struggled and grieved and longed for a day when there's no more pain. I've come to bring that day. And if our trust is in Jesus, that day will come. On that day when when God sets things right, when he restores creation, we'll be welcomed into that new creation as adopted children of God. It's wonderful news, but how does all of this help us as we think about justice and injustice right now? How does it help us to live in an unjust world? Well, I'll give four quick thoughts on that to finish. Firstly, we should long for justice. We should long for that day when God will set things right. The brokenness and and injustice of this world, whether we're enduring it ourselves or whether we're just observing other people endure it, it should stir in us a deep, deep longing for that day when God will straighten what has been made crooked, when he will punish wicked. Secondly, we should seek justice now. 
Justice is something that God delights in. And knowing that God's going to set things right one day doesn't mean that we shouldn't pursue justice before then. Uh, it's a great privilege that we have as a church to partner with Maggie Cruz, who's one of our CMS mission partners. We, we prayed for her last week, if you were here. Sex slavery is disgusting. It's, it's unjust. It's, it's evil. If there's a more evil thing in the world, I'm not sure what, what it is. And the work that Maggie and, and her team are doing in Cambodia is life-changing for so many victims of injustice. It is transforming lives. It is bringing justice where it doesn't exist. Thirdly, our desire for justice should humble us. It should deeply humble us because the gospel shows us that we are all sinners deserving of God's judgment. It's only by the grace of God through Jesus that I'm spared. The cross doesn't give me any excuse for feeling superior to anyone. At the the foot of the cross, as I look to where Jesus laid down his life for me so that I could come into relationship with God, there's no room for pride there. Understanding that should humble us to our very core. And lastly, we should trust God when we see injustice or when we experience injustice ourselves. There's no better example of this than Jesus himself. The cross was history's greatest act of injustice, the perfect son of God murdered by sinners. And yet, when they hurled their insults at him on the cross, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly, to God. So how does the wise person navigate a broken and unjust world? Well, firstly, by acknowledging the brokenness, by recognizing that that sin is the cause, but knowing that in the worst of it, God is still in control. Knowing the solution that God has provided at great cost, the love for us that is proven a million times over at the cross, and awaiting the hope that we have beyond this lifetime. This amazing, incredible gospel message gives us hope in the brokenness, a hope that nothing else this world offers can give us. And next week, we'll see particularly that it gives us hope in the face of death. I hope you can join us then. Let me pray. Father, we we look around us and we, we see a world that is broken in so many ways, a world that is unjust, unfair, unpredictable in so many ways. And we recognize that sin is the cause of this, that this world is a place that that has been made crooked because ultimately we've chosen things, chosen to do things our way rather than yours. We've rejected your ways. Uh, We confess that. We are sorry for that. And we pray that you would help us to recognize our sin, to recognize the impact that it has had, but also to know at a deep heart level your solution to sin, laying down the life of your own son so that we could come back into relationship with you. We ask that in the brokenness of the world, the brokenness of the world around us and the the brokenness of us ourselves, we would cling to the cross, that it would humble us to the depths of our hearts 
and it would fill us with joy to the depths of our heart, knowing what you have done to bring us to you. Please help us to seek justice in this world, to long for the day when perfect justice is brought about and to rejoice that we've been spared the punishment that we deserve in that justice. Thank you that your love and your justice was perfectly displayed at the cross. Please help us to build our lives on that. In Jesus' name, amen.